0: And then the doubt often ties into the fear because when we're afraid that they might leave us or that maybe I'm settling or maybe this isn't the right person for me, maybe this person is really replaying out my trauma, you know, all of those things that come along with that insecure attachment is going to also lead to the doubts.
1: Welcome to today's podcast episode. I hope that you're having a really lovely day so far. I hope that you had a great weekend. If you're listening to this in real time, I hope that you had some fun over your weekend and I hope that you did something for you. If you're kind of thinking, why is she mentioning this? Definitely go back and listen to Friday's episode where I talk specifically about this sensation of realizing how little fun I have been having personally lately and how I think it's a really relatable experience for so many women. Even an upcoming guest sent me a DM on Instagram and said to me, hey, I'm listening to your podcast right now and I'm sitting down lost thinking, what is it that I do for fun? was along those lines. And I mean, one, I was just stoked that this person was even listening to the podcast, but I wasn't surprised that she could relate to that sensation of just not feeling like she knows what fills up her own cup because so many of us don't know. We've got so many tabs opened and I, again, I won't go into it here because I've done a whole podcast episode on it. So definitely go back and listen to the episode before this one if you haven't. Now, this episode is all about relationships, and every single one of us can relate to different relationship dynamics rearing their head at one time or another. If you're in a romantic relationship right now, I think you'll get a lot out of this conversation, and even if you're not, I think you'll be nodding along going, huh, that is such helpful food for thought. The reason I love this episode so much is, well, one, I really Really adore today's podcast guest. But two, I think it's important to actually shine a light on things that aren't so Disney, I guess, in a way. And I share in this podcast episode that there have been times when I'll hear a quote and I think, no, that is so not how relationships are. And the more we perpetuate this myth that all relationships are easy, the more it can make us feel alone when that's not our reality, or the more it can make us feel like we have to be performative. And I certainly have been in relationships in the past, I would say in relationships my whole life, where I have felt the pressure to really be performative. And if you're not sure what I mean by that, I guess it's to do with the male gaze, playing a role, being good, being compliant, making myself fit around another person. And so anyway, Today's episode, it's all about normalizing different things inside your relationship, from reassuring one another to a difference in libido and sex drive. Today's guest is the perfect guest to be speaking about these topics because Dr. Elizabeth Frederick is a relationship and intimacy coach, and she specializes in emotional and physical intimacy, relationship barriers, communication skills, and helping her clients to break the toxic cycle and to address dysfunctional relational behaviors. Dr. Elizabeth has her own podcast as well, which I've linked in the show notes. It's definitely worth a listen and you will find an episode over there where yours truly is having a chat with Dr. Elizabeth all about dating post-divorce. So I can link to that episode in the show notes for you as well. But if you are interested in attachment style and you're interested in uncovering some of these patterns, these dysfunctional behaviors that can show up for all of us, definitely keep listening because this is a great episode. All right, let's get into my chat with Dr. Elizabeth. Just quickly, a word from today's sponsors. Unless, of course, you're one of our Venti members, in that case, there are no ads and your episode is about to keep playing
2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.
1: Dr. Elizabeth, thank you so much for agreeing to record this episode with me.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for asking me, Kylie. Like I was mentioning before we started recording, it was such an honor to get the email, so thank you for inviting me.
1: My pleasure. I came across one of your posts on Instagram and I just couldn't like it enough. I saved it and I was like, yes, this is the stuff that I love to see on social media because so often we see quotes that are beautiful, but they can really romanticize what love and what relationships are. And it can give us this false sense of, I don't know whether it's a false sense of hope or just like a bit of a, I don't know, it can just be so misguided but when i saw your post about things to normalize in a relationship i felt really seen and understood so i'd love to chat through some of the some of the things you have on your list
0: perfect i would love that and i love that that resonated with you that is a huge part of my brand and a huge part of my message is just really normalizing the human experience because you're absolutely right when we get these societal expectations um expectations from movie tv social media of what love should look like or how we should show up in relationships, it really fucks with people. Like it really gets in their head that they think, what is wrong with me? Why am I so defective? So that is a huge part of really my mission is just normalizing that we are all imperfect humans just trying to figure it out.
1: Yes. And it was right off the back. I can remember when I saw your post because it was off the back of listening to another podcast where they shared a quote at the start of their podcast. And they said, I came across this quote on social media and it goes like this. And it was along the lines of true love is easy. True love is like being with your best friend 100% of the time. True love means you don't even have to ask for your needs to be met. It was along those lines, Elizabeth. And I was running on the treadmill and I was like, no. Like I said out loud, I'm like, no. Like if if we all thought that that's what love was, none of us would be in relationships, surely. So one of the things on your list that stood out to me, which I'd love to chat about, is asking for reassurance.
0: Yes. So that is such a controversial topic when it comes up in sessions and um and even when i post things like that people have so much to say in terms of you know that making people needy or then they clearly have an anxious attachment style if they have to ask for reassurance and okay maybe they do so why are we not providing the reassurance if we know that that is what our partner needs and we see this a lot in a lot of different ways because sometimes people will will overtly ask for it you know like whether it's wanting to know that they're enough wanting to know that they're loved they're accepted wanting to know that their partner isn't interested in someone else like whatever that looks like but then often we see it in a lot more covert and passive aggressive ways which is actually what becomes really detrimental. So the fact is that we are all seeking reassurance in our relationships often, but it's just how we go about it. And so when we do it in a passive aggressive manner, that's usually when it comes across more jabby or like you're just being an asshole about it without really expressing like this is my need. And so when we can normalize that it's okay to just say like, hey, I'm having a hard day or... Hey, I I just haven't felt like I got enough of your attention today. When we can say it in that way, it gives our partner the space to show up for us in a safe way. And it really prevents conflict from heading the way, you know, escalating in the way it can.
1: That's what I was going to say. It seems like to me, if you can get comfortable with asking for reassurance, it kind of cuts out that middleman of having a fight, of having a conflict, because we've all been in those situations where, you know, perhaps we say something that is passive aggressive, or we act in a way to kind of, you know, pick at that spot, you know, we aggravate something. And then it ends up in a fight. And then after the fight calms down and you get to that place of repairing and connecting, and then you'll say, hey, I did that because what I really wanted was this. And it's like, if we could just take out all of the stress in the middle there and say to our partner, hey, could you please reassure me about X, Y, Z? And you're so right. There's so much controversy around that because everyone now is like, no, no, that's your problem you soothe that, you deal with that. But I just think there has to be some middle ground where we can go to our partner and have like a healthy level of dependence on them reassuring us.
0: Yeah. And it's really unfortunate because there are a good amount of mental health professionals who are sending the message that you just said of it is your job to soothe that yourself. It's your job to self-soothe. It's your job to take care of your anxious attachment. And while yes, to a, a large extent, that is true that you do have a big role in that. When we are sending our clients that message, we are now setting setting them up in this position of, of sabotage. We are putting them in a position to tell them it's not okay to ask for your partner to show up for you. I, what comes to mind whenever I talk about this, I had a client um, start with me a few months ago, and that is one of the first things he said was, He was talking about needing reassurance from his partner. And I said, Why don't you ask her for it? And his response was, Well, my last therapist said that if I do that, then that's just making my anxious attachment worse. Well, there could be an aspect of truth to that. But at the end of the day, if we're not finding ways to soothe your anxious attachment, that is what's making your anxious attachment worse. And so I think that that's just important for t- people to keep in mind that there are, there's an internal and an external component when we're working towards secure attachment or we're, we're, when we're working to be healthy in a relationship. But we can't forget about that external component, which is our partners, and we heal, we heal in connection
1: and i imagine if you can communicate and be heard and have your message received and actions taken that probably goes towards building self efficacy in creating secure attachment as well because you know you might ask them nine times to reassure you in a in a week or a month or whatever it is and then you begin to realize oh they do reassure me they do have my back they are safe they model that secure attachment for you and then you can work on developing that resilience yourself, I imagine.
0: That's exactly it. So that's what we call corrective experiences and you nailed it. That's exactly what happens when we ask our partner for reassurance and they provide it. The, what is the common misconception is that that just gives them space to keep doing it and they're going to do it more and more and more. But really the idea is exactly that, like you described. If that person is also doing their internal work, and they're also working to heal their attachment wounds and they're going to therapy and they're um, becoming a lot more self-aware and using their logical self-talk, then you're right. They get to use what we would call their evidence log of, well, every time I've asked my partner to reassure me, they have, which must mean this is true. So maybe I don't need to ask this 10th time this week because I already know. Yes. And maybe
1: I don't need to obsess about it. Yeah.
0: It's, it's funny that we're starting here because
1: I was listening. All of, my, all of my sentences, Elizabeth, start with, I was listening to a podcast, but I was listening <laughs> to a podcast. I've been listening to yours this morning too, but I was listening to a podcast earlier this morning while I was working out. And the guest on this podcast was talking about an experiment where rats had been trained to to push a button and they were given a reward. And in this podcast, they were talking about the reward as food. I've heard it in other podcasts where they spoke about it being drugs. But you know, they the rats were trained. They push a button, they get this food like a pellet, a food release. And so the rats were calm. They would go over, press the button, get their reward, and then the scientists stopped. So they would go over and the rats would press the button and nothing came. And then they started doing it with it inter, like intermittent reinforcement so they would give the pellet to them sometimes and what happened was the rats became obsessed with pushing the button when they would push the button and get the result they were fine they'd get the food they'd need and they'd move on and do their rat things but when they weren't sure whether they were going to get it or if they didn't get it they would go crazy and obsess and keep pushing the button and I feel like it's a bit similar to asking for reassurance you know if we ask reassurance in a grown-up way with clear communication and we get it, we know that it's there and it's safe. But if it's provided only occasionally or our partner withholds it because they don't want to be that safety net for us, it could make us go a little bit crazier.
0: Yeah. And it's absolutely true. That intermittent reward system is what is often used um, to explain the functioning of a toxic relationship. Because that is what that is where the addiction really gets formed, and where a lot of times those trauma bonds solidify. It is through the intermittent reward system, exactly why what you're describing. Because when we get the hit, the hit is really, it's really big for us. So we're going to keep trying for it, even though you know we're not getting it consistently. It's it's the same concept as a slot machine. Um, all of that. That is how the reward system is wired, and it's a very powerful approach to get something stuck and addicted, but like you're saying, to make it obsessive.
1: Yeah. Another uh, point that you had on your post was about changing our minds. Yes, that we're allowed to do so. (laughs) I mean, I I always feel feel like in a relationship, like I'm allowed to change my mind, (laughs) but then it's like not as palatable when your partner changes their mind.
0: Yeah. And this is definitely across the spectrum because this is like when it comes to, let's say you made a financial decision together, you know, like we're going to save X and we're going to spend X, but then somebody gets new information. And so they come back and they say, hey, you know, I discovered this and I want to talk through it because maybe the decision we made wasn't the best. Or it could be even the bigger scale of, I want to be in this relationship, but then as more information comes up, maybe about that other person or the functioning of the relationship, the realization of this isn't a good fit for me. And we're allowed to change our mind. We're allowed to choose something. When we acquire new information, it's our job to use that information accordingly. And sometimes that means to pivot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's funny how often as humans, we really just want people to stay the same even though like on one hand we want them to grow and we want them to change we want them to be reliable and if you say x then you mean x but that's just not how life is and like I've heard Esther Perel talk about how the success of her marriage that has lasted for so long is about understanding it's not one marriage it's Continually having different relationships within that marriage. So accepting, you know, your partner is going to change their mind, you're going to change your mind. And
0: how do you come together? Yeah. And the communication piece being what is most crucial about that, because we don't want to use I'm allowed to change my mind as a past to be inconsistent or as a past to be flaky. That's not you know both ends of a spectrum are dysfunction, and so neither neither is a great choice. So we have to find that middle ground of we are empowered to change our mind, but the way that we go about doing it and the way that we even went about making the initial decision, all of that is is our responsibility and is up to us to be responsible in how we do that. So I try to be careful, too, with some of the normalizing, right, because I'm like not trying to hand out all these free passes of, you know, you can be as dysfunctional as you want. That's not the point it's that we need to find the gray area.
1: Yeah, of course, and there are so many nuances. Someone might be listening going, "Oh, so my husband can just change his mind on being monogamous." No, that's not what we're saying, but it's <laughs> right. just you can change your mind as information comes to hand and be responsible and communicate it clearly. Yes. Another point that I loved was about holding each other accountable.
0: Yes, which or I'm sure you can relate to this as well as being very driven in, in what you do and, you know, focused on obviously your career and um, personal lifestyle choices, all of those things that when those are important to somebody, it's a really powerful thing to have a partner who gets that and who supports that and is able to encourage you and support you and challenge you and hold you accountable. And so I think that that is also another area of like, it depends on how you do it because we don't want to parentify our parents. We don't want to put them in a position of authority over us. That's not what it's about. But what it is about is when your partner has made a commitment to you or your partner has made a commitment to themselves and they're going against that commitment. You know, they're not following through with the things that they said they would do that's a really powerful thing to have such a healthy and safe connection that you can say, babe, we need to talk about this because it's not, this is not in alignment with what you committed to.
1: Yeah. And this is something, and I know that my partner won't mind me saying, but this is something that we've realized within our dynamic. He's never had a partner or anyone in his life. He hasn't had a parent do this for him either. No one's held him accountable. He's very much been a lone wolf, and he manages things on his own. And so it has been a really confronting experience for him to be with someone who is like, "No, no, hang on, your words, you're saying this, but your actions are saying this, but that's saying that like we've got we, we've got to have some cohesion here and holding him accountable. And I know when we first started having those difficult conversations, he really felt attacked or like I was being purposefully mean. And then I had to realize, okay, I need to come at this from a much more loving place. You know, if someone's never had someone who wants to hold them accountable. uh, And again, it's a tricky line to straddle like that line between, I do not want to uh, infantilize you. I don't want to be your mom, but I also need you to be self-aware of where the gaps are and it's like this tricky line of how to lovingly hold a mirror up for your partner and I found it's been really helpful that when we're having a great time you know when we're out on a date when we're in a really good state of mind together that's when it's been helpful for me to bring it up and say hey like for me in a relationship growth and being known and being seen is like the top of what I want and need from someone. How do you feel about that? Like, how can I lovingly be a mirror to you in a way that doesn't make you feel small or doesn't make you feel like I have some authority on the topic? Like, where can we work together on holding each other accountable and really giving him permission as well to do the same to me? It's been massive for us.
0: Well, and that's one of the biggest parts, right, is that if you are wanting to give that feedback, if you're wanting to hold your partner accountable, you have to be willing to receive it. And you're really describing it, you know, in such an insightful way that it's about feedback, not criticism. And it can be really easy to come across as critical or condescending uh, in the attacking in, in those moments of bringing that to their awareness. But when we can learn to do in a way in a way that is safe feedback, we can do it in a way that starts with us even validating their experience, normalizing where, where it's probably coming from. But then I love how you then ask the question because that is always what I suggest when we do hold someone accountable and we do have these hard conversations, it should always come from a place of curiosity. We should really seek to understand their experience because if we jump at them with, well, you didn't do that thing you said you would do, and they're like, well, hold up. Let me, you know, there's all of these things that maybe got in the way of it, then you've just already ruptured before there's been any chance at really having a healthy discussion around it. So starting from a place of curiosity is one of the most powerful things you can do when having the hard conversation of accountability. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Feelings of frustration with each
0: other. <laughs> yes. It's off okay. Back, off the back of that. <laughs> it is okay. And what comes up with this is insecure attachment style. So, whether it's the avoidance or the anxious, when we feel like somebody is upset at us, you know, so somebody that has anxious attachment, they're going to often fawn and try to fix it and do everything that they can um, to overly compensate. Somebody with a more avoidant, approach to relationships is going to be like, then forget it. Like I'm out. Like if you don't like what I'm doing, if you don't like what I did or who I am, then I'm out. And those extremes make it impossible to just hold space for, Hey, what you did irritated me. And I would like to talk about it. And when it gets so blown up, when we don't normalize that, that you are going to get irritated with your partner, you're going to get frustrated. You're going to get angry. That is normal and okay. That is not the end of the relationship, though. It doesn't have to be the end of the relationship if you're both on the same page about that.
1: Yeah, I love that. And I mean, how often do we as humans just get frustrated with ourselves?
0: Yeah. Yeah, it, it's very <laughs> All the time. That's, it, it's hard to have a relationship with that level of safety. It's funny, my ex-husband, we've been divorced for about three years and he's my best friend in the world. And he is probably one of the only people... Who we can, you know, we'll go at it on the phone real quick of like, well, you said, you know, blah, blah. And we're like, okay, talk to you in 20 minutes. You know, like, there, we know that there's that conflict. We've established so much safety in our dynamic over the last 20 years that we know we're going to get frustrated and we know there's going to be conflict but I never once question if he's going to answer my call when I inevitably call back to apologize for being the asshole. So <laughs> that is, you know, what, what we want is that we can be frustrated, not the asshole part, try to be nice. I'm working on it, but we can be frustrated and know there's safety.
1: Absolutely. What about normalizing differences in libido or intimacy preferences?
0: Yeah. So something I've discovered in my work as a couples counselor and intimacy coach, and, and I talk about it so often. Um, so people don't talk about their sex life together. I, I don't know if you're aware of that, but people often, whether they've been together a few months, whether they're just starting to date, whether they've been together 20 years, they often do not talk about their sexual relationship together. And so what happens is somebody might have a different which of course they do. They have differences in desires and differences in libido and sexual preferences, but because they aren't talking about it, it leads to feelings of rejection, of abandonment, of I'm not good enough for you. You don't want me. All of these assumptions are made around it. And so first and foremost, we need to normalize that you're going to have differences. But then secondly, we have to create safety to have conversations around it so that they can understand, no, I, I had a really bad day at work today. And so that's why I'm not feeling turned on, not because I'm not attracted to you.
1: And it sounds like if you're having those conversations, then that just brings a level of acceptance and responsibility versus that chasing for the sameness or feeling like there's this lack mentality or there's something wrong with you because you don't want sex as often as your partner does. Um, So yeah, those conversations, just sitting down and saying like, this is kind of my baseline, like this is my preference. What is your preference? Uh, And how do we make that work for us both?
0: Yeah. And I have those, I recommend to all the couples that I work with that they do at least a a check-in once a week where it's, they ask each each other questions, um, intimacy questions included in that um, about their love language and are their needs getting met. um, But that they are talking about that. Are your sexual needs being met? Are you feeling like, are you getting what you want or is it feeling like you're giving more than you want? And having that conversation at least once a week is a really powerful thing to prevent because we know it, right? It's money and sex that are often the biggest fights, the biggest areas of, um, of pain and a relationship's demise. And so when we can get ahead of that and we're talking about it, it makes a huge difference.
1: Yeah, and just understanding, I guess, what goes towards someone feeling more desire, perhaps. I'm just as you were speaking there, Elizabeth. I was thinking like one of the things I often say to my partner is like when he's so good with the kids. So I went through a divorce as well around the same time you did. It sounds like uh, repartnered. My partner does not have kids of his own, but he is incredible with my nine-year-old twin boys. And I will just say to him, like as he's walking past, like you have no idea how much I want you right now. Like you are, like when you are just kicking goals and you are in this incredible stepdad mode and you're like, like you just, and he he didn't realize, like he didn't realize how much that makes me then feel like, oh, I just want to physically be with you when he's incredible outside of the bedroom. So even just that communication piece of like, that goes towards my desire bucket and like understanding what works for him, you know? So for him, it's like, the freedom to go and do the training that he needs to do and the hobbies that he enjoys and just understanding how we each kind of fill up our own like desire buckets that we can bring back together at the end of the day.
0: Yeah. And that's a huge part of those check-ins. I talk a lot on my Instagram about the different types of intimacy and the different types of foreplay that really support those types of intimacy. So I love what you're describing because that really ties into for a lot A lot of times for females, that emotional intimacy, so like when you see him being nurturing, being attentive to your children, as a mom, we're like, oh my gosh, that's so hot. And so that creates emotional intimacy for you, which then... Arouses and creates desire and allows you to be more attentive to the physical piece of that. So for me, mine is intellectual intimacy is is a big deal for me. So when I'm on a date at a museum or a theater or doing something creative, I'm like, oh, it's such a turn on, and that leads to that. And so when couples can have those conversations, you know, during their check ins to understand what is each other's preference when it comes to the different types of intimacy and the different types of foreplay. And ensuring they're fostering that, it's almost inevitably going to lead to quality and quantity of sex.
1: Yeah. Something that I would love to touch on as well that you included in your list of things to normalize was having fears and doubts. And I wondered, does that mean it's normal to have fears and doubts in the relationship that you're in? Like, obviously, it's normal to have fears and doubts in life, but is it normal to sometimes look at your partner and
0: think... I just don't know. Yeah, it's really, really common and really, really normal and really, really okay. Like, I think that that's the other piece of it. Again, going back to the different attachment styles, it, an insecure attachment style is rooted in a fear of abandonment and rejection. So no matter what type, anxious, avoidant, disorganized, whatever type of the insecure, however it's manifesting, it's rooted in fear. And that fear is that you are going to be left or that you're going to be rejected. You're not going to be enough for that other person. So first and foremost, let's just normalize. And 50% of the population, statistics say, have an insecure attachment style. I always push back on that. I think it is much higher. I'm just knowing the number of people I've talked to and worked with. Also, when we think about it on a pie chart, so you know, secure might be 52%, and then there's these other anxious and avoidant tendencies that come up. That means that even if secure is the majority of their pie chart, they're still dealing with some of these other insecurities. And so the fear is normal for everyone. And then the doubt often ties into the fear because when we're afraid that they might leave us or that maybe I'm settling or maybe this isn't the right person for me, maybe this person is really replaying out my trauma you know, all of those things that come along with that insecure attachment is going to also lead to the doubts. And so going back to the beginning of our conversation around doing that internal and external work to have a healthy relationship, when you're in therapy or when you're doing your reading, your self-exploration, and you're understanding yourself better and you're understanding how you show up in relationships better, this really... Helps you when those fears and doubts come up that you can sort through. Like, is this coming from a place of truth or a place of trauma? And then you can make a more informed decision.
1: Yeah, it's one of the things that I receive direct messages about all the time. And it's not something I ever uh, saw coming. But I think when people have followed along for many years and then they see you go through a relationship breakdown, a divorce, uh, so many people have reached out to me and I feel like they've positioned me as someone who knows. Like, who knows that if you're feeling this level of fear that you should end your relationship? And I'm like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I I don't know when you should end your relationship or what level of fear or doubt is normal. But I feel like so many women go over and over what the fear and the doubt means in their mind and it becomes this big thing of like oh I am experiencing doubts about this person for whatever reason and then following these threads and making it bigger and bigger and bigger and then working themselves up into a spot where they feel like they have to decide there and then do I stay or do I go and I think it's just so powerful to normalize having those fears having those doubts unpack what they mean for yourself without, you know, pulling the trigger and going just because I'm having this fear or doubt, I have to end the relationship and move on and do all of these things.
0: Yeah. And I often have, so clients in all different, um, relationship, Stages of their life. So, whether they're dating or they are in this, should I stay or should I go phase of life, I often have them do um, an activity I call their needs, wants, and boundaries. And so they identify five needs. These are non negotiables in a relationship and trying to, as much as they can, like just pretending they're on a stranded island, like they're by themselves taking out, which is almost impossible to do, but as much as you can, Um, your five wants, which are your preferences, and then your five boundaries, which are absolute deal breakers. And so whether you're dating and so you're going into the dating with that context of like, okay, I know I'm doing this intentionally. I know what I'm looking for. Or you've been in a long-term relationship and you're like having these fears and doubts and you're trying to figure out what it means. Often that can really give you some clarity around, is this partner what you need? Is this partner what you want? Is this partner really respecting boundaries that you have? Um, And that's a good place to start with the clarity. But then I always suggest like seeking a third party to help you process through that, because sometimes those fears and doubts really are the result of unprocessed attachment wounds, unprocessed childhood trauma um, that is just kind of stuck in creating issues for us.
1: I love a list. So the idea of sitting down and writing like wants, needs and boundaries is so appealing to me. And I know so many of our listeners will love that. But I wondered if you could give us an example of what might go under those headings. Just as you were talking, I was thinking like, oh, I could think of a need, but that kind of also crosses over with a boundary.
0: Sure. And you're going to see that happen often. So the needs and the boundaries often will kind of look similar. So for example, for me, um, a need would be that I need somebody emotionally intelligent so I, that they understand mental health, that they can have conversations around mental health. Um, I need somebody intellectual that that's a non-negotiable for me. Um, and, and another need, I need somebody to have a job. So, I mean, as simple as that, I need someone to have a job, to be career oriented, to be driven. So those are some examples that would go in needs and they are so uniquely different for everyone, but those would be some of mine. Um, In the wants, this is more preferences. So um, I would like somebody that lives an active lifestyle. Um, That would be a preference for me. I would like somebody creative. So those are more like, I describe it as that if a need is not met, there is a high possibility of it creating resentment for you. Whereas if a want isn't met, you can sometimes be like, well, that sucks, but I can get past that. I, I don't have to obsess over that. And then a boundary, I mean, they are non-negotiable. So for me, um, a smoker, that would be a non-negotiable for me. Somebody with small children is a non-negotiable because of the stage of life that I'm in. Um, And so those are the things that, you know, when I'm on the dating apps and I see those things pop up, I'm like, no, that's, I'm not even going to entertain this because I already know.
1: Because you have clarity. Yes. Would you recommend people do this even in their existing relationships?
0: I do. And I I absolutely do. So for the first, that should I stay or should I go? Because it can create clarity around that. But even if that's not the case, even if you feel like mostly I'm happy, you know, conflict happens, but what relationship doesn't, but I still suggest that they do it because when we have clarity around those things, that is how we get to verbalize them to our partner. That is how, when we have our weekly check-ins, we say, hey, you know, this is really a need for me. Can we find a way to make it happen? Can we collaborate together to find a way to meet this need? Um, And it really just, it prevents those future ruptures. And it also just creates a lot of fulfillment and sustainability.
1: Yeah, I love that. I often speak about how important it is to know your own core values, because when you actually know them and you can articulate them, it makes life so much easier in terms of deciding what goes at the top of the priority list, what things you say yes to, what you say no to. And to me that just sounds like a continuation of that sort of thing. You're going to your partner, you're shining a spotlight on it and saying, hey, if we don't look at this, we could, you know, drift further apart. But if we look at this, it's that opportunity to connect and come together again, which I, I love. Yeah. There were So true. There was Oh, oh no, you're right. I was going to say there were some other really great things on your post as well, but I'm going to pop it in our show notes so that people jump over and they read those remaining four or five things that we didn't get to today because it's such good food for thought. Your whole Instagram account is amazing food for thought. What is your uh, Instagram handle for our listeners so that they can find you while they're listening right now?
0: Yes, it's at Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick. So D-R, Elizabeth, and then Fedrick. F Frank, E-D-R-I-C-K. So often that gets misspelled as Frederick. Um, It is Fedrick, Dr. Elizabeth Fedrick.
1: I'll make sure we have the link in our show notes for people who want to just click and jump over. But I wanted to make sure that we included that because I just think we spend so much time on social media and if we can have people in our feeds that are providing really helpful and insightful information, it makes a difference. Before you run away, what would be your all-time favorite piece of relationship advice or just your favorite today?
0: I would say that probably the focus on safety is the most important thing. And so that is the intimacy, the closeness, the connection, that that is the glue for a relationship. And so I think, I guess, to put it in more like advice nugget would be, if you don't feel that that safety exists, find a way to make that safety happen. Because having a sense of safety and security in a relationship will be either you know what makes it thrive or will be the demise. But that is the primary focus.
1: Yeah. As you're explaining that, then I'm just sitting here nodding, going, yes, it really is. Like I can think of so many different relationship dynamics and if safety was at the central,
0: at you know, at the center of it, how different things could be. Yeah. yeah. It's so true. And the the weekly check-ins that I was talking about, that's a really good place to start. Just, you know, build that intimacy and, and create that connection. So if it's not already there. I would suggest doing it.
1: Is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners, anywhere you would like to send them, direct them? What else should they know about you? You have an incredible podcast as well.
0: Thank you. I do. Um, yes, Relatable Relationships Unfiltered, very similar conversation to what we just had it is I normalize the human experience in relationships. Um, and my website, com. I also you know, have information on my coaching there. Um, and then my first book will be out next month. So that's really exciting. And I'll, you know, be promoting that through my Instagram and everything. But I really dig into a lot of what we talked about today um, with the wants, needs and boundaries and how our child, childhoods really inform how we show up in our adult relationships. So it's going to encompass all of that. Congratulations. Oh, thank a you bull. so much. That's massive. It's so exciting. Yeah. I'm I'm really excited. It it puts all together in one place um, my approach as a coach and um really my just my approach to healthy relationships in general. And it's done through the lens of my story. So um it's it's a double whammy of um excitement for me.
1: Oh, congratulations. Writing a book is Thank no easy you. feat. And I'm very excited to be able to get my hands on it in a month's time and have a read of it. <laughs> All of the links will be in the show notes. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to know you a little bit more today. Thank you for your wisdom.
0: Thank you, Kylie. I appreciate it. This has been a great conversation, a lot of fun, and you'll have to come join me on mine here soon. Anytime. Anytime. Yes, absolutely.
1: Today's podcast episode was recorded on the land of the Bundjalung Nation. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea, and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row?